This episode of The Candid Frame is proudly sponsored by Fujifilm's latest collaboration with Frame.io Camera to Cloud. With this innovative integration, you can now seamlessly transfer your images or videos directly from your Fujifilm camera to the web using C2C technology. To learn more about this exciting development, visit fujifilm-x.com and click on Camera to Cloud. Being a photojournalist is about more than just taking captivating photographs. It's about having certain qualities that make a real difference. Curiosity is key. It's a desire to dig deeper, to uncover untold stories and unique perspectives that others may miss. There's also persistence. It's what keeps a photojournalist going, even when faced with challenges and setbacks. Finally, it's the willingness to ask those tough, unconventional questions that others might shy away from. That's what sets a great photojournalist apart. I believe that photographer Raquel Nataliccio possesses those qualities. You don't have to take my word for it, you just have to look at her photographs, especially the years of work focusing on immigration along the U.S. and Mexican border. Though she currently works as a staff photographer for the Houston Chronicle, most of the stories you'll find on her website were self-assigned, personal projects. These were stories she wanted to tell, and she didn't wait for someone's permission to pursue it. You can't help but admire that kind of passion and tenacity. This is Ibadi X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. So I'm excited to have you. I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while. I just, you know, going through my long list and I said, oh, <laughs> I haven't talked to her in a while. And then I saw what you've been up to. I said, oh, this is it's probably as good time as any. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be on there. I listen to your podcast all the time. So it's pretty cool to, to be amongst the list. <laughs> well, you, you do amazing work, especially over the last couple of years. I wanted to start, though, with um, your beginnings, because I know that you get the photography bug as a result of an after-school program. But who was Raquel at that moment in time? Tell me about the girl that you were at that moment and why that why that program, your introduction to photography, why that triggered something in you? Uh, Raquel at that time was incredibly creative, like just had my hands on everything I could think of that gave me a creative outlet, uh, whether it was painting, drawing, imagining music videos to songs and writing them down in a notebook. Like just, mm -hmm. I had this deep yearning to create. Um, and I, you know, truth be told, I was also the kid that, you know, it, the joke in my family is that I kind of came out of the room with a disposable camera, um, and it got too expensive <laughs> for my parents. <laughs> so they eventually brought, bought me like a, a video recorder, but all I did was take pictures on it. <laughs> and so mm. at some point, you know, they kind of understood that I loved sharing story uh, because I was the kid that also went to a different school almost every single year, uh, traveling a lot with my parents who moved around a lot. And I had parents in different countries. So my father and I lived in Spain for many years and my mother still lived in Los Angeles, which is where I was born. And so I would travel between the two countries pretty often. And 
I found that my disposable camera was kind of my way to share all of the experiences that I was having because I was traveling alone a lot of the time. And so it was my way to be able to like, you know, get in front of the TV and like plug in whatever I had, you know, taken pictures of on the camcorder or be able to like, you know, show my parents, you know, just the journey in between the two spheres um, of my existence, I guess. And it wasn't until I uh, slept over a friend's house and she was taking uh, after school photography classes. And so I went with her just to support her, just to go. And I remember the first time I saw my photos developed after just doing it out of pure fun and joy and really not thinking that it was going to be anything. Um, But when I saw the image come through my brain and into a physical, tangible form, my world was rocked after that. And like, I was an obsessive human being (laughs) after that. So this, so this is film. You're talking about the the print appearing in the in the development in the development yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. That was just and you know for so many photographers that I you know admire that I've spoken to like that moment of witnessing a vision come to life in a very tangible way is that aha moment, um, and that was definitely it for me as well. So when you when you remember holding that print and thinking about it. What was the power that was inherent in that, in in that photograph? Because a lot of, you know, there are a lot of people who experience that and they think that it's nifty and that it's cool, but they lose interest after a while. But for people like us, it it triggers something. And I've thought about it a lot and I've written a lot of, a lot about it, so I kind of have an understanding of why why it became so important to me. But have you thought about it and do? You, Do you have an understanding of why that was? For me, it was, um, you know, this is like the the only child woe story, but it was the first time that my inner world was really expressed in my spirit's language, like in my personal language. And I was able to share it. Um, I'm not a words person as much as Mm -hmm. I am a visual person. And since preschool, I have remembered my dreams like almost every week, I remember at least three, four from a night. Um, and for me, it was almost like a dream coming to life. Like my inner spiritual plane was yeah. now seen in this existence, in this reality. And that was kind of that spark for me is that I can have an idea or a vision or a feeling and express it and have it come out tangibly to be able to share with others. And that rocked my world um, because I've, I've always had a hard time talking about my dream life because it's not something that everybody is, you know, well-versed in anymore or that, you know, we're not really encouraged to share. Oftentimes we're kind of told that dreams are these things that happen to us to get, you know, to work through our day. Um, But I was having experiences that were, you know, felt like, I don't know, like spiritual training in a way. And I realized that the more I paid attention to that and photography, they like work together. And so like I would, you know, I was doing a lot of climbing buildings and rooftops and, you know, going into places I probably should not have been going into when I first started. Um, The streets were my classroom. I didn't really get trained formally for photography. I would just go out into the streets from sunrise to sundown and I would come back just covered in dirt and all sorts of things. Um, But then I was noticing that my dreams were actually reflecting 
and kind of speaking to those new experiences that I was having through street photography. So I would start dreaming of scenarios where I was like climbing more like higher or kind of pushing my boundaries. And then the next day I would encounter a situation in which I had to use that very same training, I guess, that I had in that dream time. And so it was feeding my photography and then the photography was feeding my dream time. And there was this really interesting conversation that was happening between the two. And all I can gather is that it really is the language of of, of your soul, of your spirit. You know, it's not just capturing a moment, it's noticing a moment, right? Like out of all the things that are happening, this one piece of this existence was meaningful to me and, you know, wanting to share that with other people, um, in a way that I could not verbally express, but I can show. Why was exploring Los Angeles with your camera so critical for you to be able to come to express that? Because some people will just photograph what's in sort of their immediate vicinity, you know, their families themselves, but you were going out there, you know, using virtually the whole city to create your, your initial photographs. And even when you started working professionally, um, why do you think that was important for you to, to, to sort of hone your skills and, and sort of develop your voice? I think a lot of it has to do with really wanting to reach people and communicate to others. Um, and I was really excited by being able to do that through photography. Um, I almost feel like I was photographing not just for myself, but for other people. I was really... Um, keen on showing people from LA that you can get out, out of your car (laughs) and it's okay. (laughs) You know, like there's all these amazing things that are happening in between, you know, where you are in your car and your car to where you're going. And I felt really passionate about that. I was cycling a lot at the time. Um, a lot of the people in my immediate community were cyclists, graffiti artists, people who spent their day out on the streets every single day. And, I really understood that there's a magic in that. There's a magic in just being in your environment and listening to it and following those whispers of the city, you know, like seeing the, following the little white rabbit, if you will. Um, And I really got to know the city in a way that I was inspired to get other people to go outside and to explore and to have those similar experiences that I was having. And I I still feel that like, even now my heart's getting all like, yeah. But um, what you know? What part of Los Angeles uh, did you did you live? Uh, paint a picture for me of what that what it was like for you. Yeah, I lived all over the place. I kind of lived in the South Bay area. Um, I lived in East LA for in different little parts of East LA. So like Boyle Heights, Lincoln Heights. I also lived in Lawndale and like around Inglewood area. So like I kind of jumped around all over the place, which also I think really informed that curiosity because I was seeing all these like mini worlds coexisting because Los Angeles is such a huge city. Um, and I wanted people to understand that people, that LA is not just Hollywood, you know, there's so much rich culture in that city. And I was just dying to get to know more of it and to share it and to inspire other people to also look for it. But, but I completely uh, agree with you in terms of, um, Los Angeles. Because I, I grew up watching TV and watching movies, and it seemed like everything it was everything that was west of, you know, west of the 405, you know, and north of the 10. 
And that was the world that everybody saw. And I never saw my Los Angeles in anything that I would, I would see until I was, you know, an adult. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I photograph where I photograph or why I like to photograph where I photograph, because I want, I want the Los Angeles that I grew up with, especially the people that I kind of grew up with and they're familiar with to be, to be seen in my photographs. Cause I, I, I don't need to go to the West side and make photographs there because there's, there's enough imagery of that. And for me, it's important. And I think it is to you, especially because of the themes and the subject matter that you, you know, that you've, you've turned to. Um, when, when did you think that the, this thing that you were doing that was giving you so much pleasure and satisfaction, giving you such a voice that you wanted to do, you know, photojournalism and, and documentary photography. What made you think that, you know, you could have a, a career that revolved around something that you had kind of just taught yourself to do? I think, I mean, it's, it's two things, like two kind of major events occurred in my life that completely, um, I guess directed me in, in, in that way. And one was in within the graffiti community, I started hearing the same thing over and over and over from different people. And when that happens, I tend to really pay attention because if different people within a same community are all saying a certain thing, then there's a common thread and maybe a story is brewing that needs to be shared. Um, and one of those things was a lot of the, uh, older generation graffiti artists, some of the legends of LA, like, you know, Hex, Teacher, um, the UTI crew, they were all kind of wishing and hoping that the younger generation really understood the, the roots of graffiti and why graffiti is important to a community, not just to vandalize or not just to like get up on a wall, but like why, what's the deeper meaning behind graffiti? And I kept hearing them say this, and so little by little, I was like, okay, well, you know, tell me your story. Like, why is it important? Like, tell me, cause I'm a total outsider. So like, I'd love mm -hmm. to know. And so little by little, I started collecting stories and started noticing that all these people came from totally different backgrounds, completely walks of different walks of life, but they all ended up at the same walls and they all had a shared desire to communicate to a younger generation, to nurture a younger generation. And so from there, I was like, okay, well, everyone wants this thing. Let's just put it together make a book that's uh, affordable and accessible. And let's just tell these stories. And it, it kind of, and then I just did, I <laughs> just made a book and like put it all together. And I spent a year following around almost 10 different artists and just, you know, if they got up at 3am to go paint on the train tracks, I got up at 3am to go, <laughs> to go document, you know, and I just kind of tagged along and they opened up their world to me in a really beautiful, vulnerable and honest way. And I think that when you have a shared intention and a common goal, um, even people like graffiti artists who are very concerned about anonymity, mm -hmm they'll open up. And I think that's also something that I've carried with me into, you know, photojournalism, especially my work at the border. Like that project really showed me how even the people who you think don't want to be photographed, they want to share their story. And I think that it's building relationships was the most important part about that. Like that was the biggest lesson I got out of that first one. And then I understood the power of story because I saw younger kids reading 
these stories from like the people they look up to these legends and then really shifting their actions. And then again, it was like seeing film come to life. It's like I can, an idea comes into fruition into the tangible world and action then manifests and people, and then it changes something in your very real world. And like, after that, I was like, okay, this is amazing. Like just sharing story can activate people and motivate people, um, to change. And that's incredible to me. Was that the time when you were working and you quit your job so that you could just become immersed in photography? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good story. I literally just was like, you know what? Someone said to me, jump and the net will appear. And I never understood Mm. that until I literally could not take working in a coffee shop any longer. Like the customer service was killing me. Like, God bless all people in the service industry. That is a, please tip all of your service industry people, whoever is listening, tip them well. Um, But I remember I had $10 in my bank account, $10.82. I'll never forget it. And I just walked out of there and I told my manager, it's not you, it's me, like literally. Um, And I just said, I have to give it my all. Like I have to really just trust that this is what I'm meant to do because I felt it in my soul that this is my purpose. And I just left. And then I went, oh my God, what did I just do? I have no way. Like no one just becomes a photojournalist overnight with $10 in their bank account. Like, what am I doing? And I remember calling my manager back up and I was like, please hire me back. I don't know what came over me. And she said something to me that I'll never forget. And she said, I believe in you and I know you believe in yourself. And so this is for you. It's going to feel rough, but this is Mm -hmm. for you. And she said, rejection is redirection. So I'm going to say no. I will not hire you. Wow. That was a real gift. It, that gift is the gift that keeps on giving to this day. And even with people I encounter who, you know, feel rejection over certain things, and especially in freelance photojournalism, my God, you have to be comfortable with rejection. And those words have just rung in my head and in my heart ever since she said that to me. Um, so. You got a little, little more than 10 bucks in the bank. You got this idea that you haven't really completely thought out or figured out. Your boss is not going to have you back. What did you need to do in order to figure it out and make it happen and not end up in some other coffee shop? <laughs> right. Um, well, just very serendipitously, I went on LinkedIn that night and I applied for everything under the sun that had anything to do with photography, including like, you know, headshots for schools, like, you know, anything. I didn't care. But I ended up with a job at Road Trip Nation, um, which is a PBS educational program that essentially they hired me as a motivational speaker and an educational speaker to go around high schools around the country and essentially talk about how um, you don't have to kind of settle for your circumstances and you can really uh, just take practical steps to achieving your dreams and the goals that you have for your life. Um, So we would go to very underfunded schools, uh, tech colleges as well, like tech colleges inside of prisons um, in Alabama and in a few places in the South. And we would just talk to people and really give people the space to just say, okay, what do you love? 
Like, don't think about the possibility of it happening or not. Just what do you love? And then from there, what are the practical steps that we can take that you can take to really like start that process and to essentially just break down these walls that may have been built around the possibility of, of achieving your goals. Um, and in turn, it helped me really yeah. remember that. <laughs> you couldn't have asked for a better job because if you had asked, gotten a job, say, as a, as a photo assistant or working in a lab, you would not have gotten that kind of insight. Because there you're, you're focusing on the very thing you need to learn and understand in order to sort of make it happen. Because even if you had gotten a job that was photo related, you could have gotten just as stuck there as you might have at the coffee shop. Exactly. And, and it was a, it's a beautiful thing. I always uh, say I used to teach photography to young girls in after school programs, mm-hmm. like the girl that I was essentially. And I, I, I always say that I was as much a student of theirs as I was their teacher. And in that moment, also with Road Trip Nation, I was motivating, but I was also being motivated, um, just listening to people's dreams and, and having those aha moments of like, oh, like there are practical steps. And then I was like, oh, yeah, there are practical steps for me, too. And it's a really beautiful thing that happens that oftentimes when we encourage or support other people, it's typically the thing that we also need. Yeah. Um, in our life. As passionate and as enthusiastic as you are now, and you were likely then thinking of oh, this is what I'm going to do. Um, how were you standing in your way and what did you have to learn to be able to overcome, overcome whatever obstacle you were created in your own mind? I think the ways that I was in my way are actually still things I'm, I'm unlearn- unlearning and untethering for myself now. Um, which is, you know, like I was not formally trained. I didn't go to college for this. So I've had to kind of learn everything as I go and be very humbled to the fact that I did not know what I was doing. You know, I was just, I just had heart and drive and I still do, but I had no idea how to go about this. I didn't know the business. I didn't know literally the first thing about, I didn't even know what FTP was, you know, like (laughs) I just went out there with a camera and I've had some really beautiful people come into my life and in certain moments and really help push me up and teach me these things. And then, yeah, I think it's something even now I deal with a little bit of that imposter syndrome, if you will, you know, like, like I'm a staff photojournalist, like that doesn't ring through my brain yet. You know, like I can't, I just go into the newsroom sometimes just to sit there, like just to like watch it go by and be in it because it's, it's very cool that I was, that I'm able to like push through without having to go the traditional or the classical route, you know? Um, but I still, I still deal with it sometimes. I, I won't lie. <laughs> but you know, I, I think that's a superpower because you don't know the rules because you don't, you know, follow some sort of rigid, rigid structure. It, it can literally be anything that you want it to be, anything you can make it to be. I think one of the things that's stifling about a lot of sort of photo education or education in general is that it's so strictly defined and that people regardless of whether photography or any sort of effort feel like there is, there's a, a singular way of being able to do a thing. And that works for some people. 
but for others it doesn't. And I think that if the that if that methodology, if that structure doesn't work, it dissuades people from pursuing something that they're drawn to do because they think, oh, I can't do it. And it's not no, you can't do it based on that design. That doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means that you need to find a different way of doing it. And that's 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 hard. You know, luckily, you know, uh, you weren't burdened by that to, the, to a great degree. You know, you still face it sometimes, but I think that's the beauty of what you've been able to uh, uh, achieve is that you're just, I, it's, I could say that you're bold, but at the same moment, I could say, she don't know no better. <laughs> and both are true. Yes. <laughs> My editor would be rolling right now. <laughs> and, you know, I am, I'm glad you said that it is a superpower because, you know, it is, it is true. I really don't know better, but I also like, um, I see how our industry is just, it's shape shifting so quickly. Um, and with good reason, it, it mm-hmm. kind of needs to, and, I do feel a bit emboldened to think outside of the box and to kind of like grab, you know, kind of media by the shoulders and be like, Hey, (laughs) you know, like this generation of photographers and journalists and editors and just visual storytellers, like we want something different. And I think it really does take a group of people who are bold and don't know any better that want to do better to really help that evolution along. So what Um, do you, what is it that you want to see different? Oh man, (laughs) where's the list? The number one thing I think is just building bridges between communities and the newsroom. I think out of the excitement of new media, we kind of got wrapped up in that whirlwind. And, you know, the first thing I saw when I walked into the Houston Chronicle was this placard that they have. And it had a sentence that out of the bigger paragraph of the, um, the ethos of journalism and how it really is a service, a public service to people. And it really motivated me to want to create community engagement within photojournalism, right? Like inviting people back to the round table, opening dialogue and conversation, like what, like being very humbled by the fact that we don't know everything that's happening in a community. We cannot know everything. It's not our job to tell people what the news is. I think Mm -hmm. it's our job to really listen to communities and say, okay, what are we missing? What isn't being talked about? Like not just following the thing that is already being talked about, kind of like what you said, how you like to photograph the spaces that aren't photographed as much, right? Like what are, how do we keep adding to the story? Because at the end of the day, this becomes our collective history, our collective remembrance, like what the stories we tell now and collect now are how we will be remembered for years and years to come. Um, And so it can't always just be tragedy. It can't always just be the big boom fire, you know, that has to be reported and documented. But I think that we can go beyond that. I think we can work with people also to report on solutions that are being created, to report on how people are activated in their communities, to report things that motivate people beyond the issue. 
um, that we're talking about and documenting. So I don't know, bring community engagement meetings into every newsroom, listen to people, more collaboration between writers and photographers, you know, building bridges within the newsroom as much as between the newsroom and communities. Um, I think just the, the relationship building that we consider as such a, like, you know, part of the structure, I think also has to be carried out in our personal relationships as well. And, and, you know, that can be hard. I'm noticing now in uh, corporate media, but yeah. I think it's really necessary so that we can really report and come from a place from, from a heart space, right. A place of care and empathy and, uh, and really doing the work for people first and foremost. How did you try and do that when you were, when you're freelancing before you went to Houston and you were in LA? Oh man, that's all I could really do because to be perfectly honest, nobody knew who I was. I wasn't really getting assignments that all that often. I mean, my biggest example is my work at the, at the U S Mexico border, how it all started in Tijuana. Um, when I went down there and experienced the encampment that was there for the first time, I didn't know how to pitch, but I gave it my best shot. And I pitched and my little heart out to everyone, like literally everyone about this encampment. But it wasn't about the tragic elements of this encampment where there was plenty tragedy mm -hmm. to talk about. The story that I found that was like a light bulb went off in my head is how so many people from different countries came together to this one encampment, countries that historically have been very racist towards one another. But out of the means to survive, they all came together and began to work together to build a literal mini community slash city. So the, the women that were teachers, they built a little school out of one of their tents. People who had owned restaurants, they built a little uh, communal kitchen where, you know, like Haitian uh, migrants were cooking one day and then Honduran migrants were cooking another day and teaching each other the different foods that, you know, were popular in their home countries um, to people who had worked security then were actually working security for the encampment. So like this little world was being made and people were coexisting and living and working together to survive and to keep each other safe. And, you know, it's not without its drama. It wasn't utopia either, but, yeah. but there was something really beautiful that I think went past m people suffering at the border. I think that that is what was happening, but then look at what came from that. And that was a conversation I was just dying to have and documented, but I got no response from anyone. But I kept, I kept going every other weekend. I would drive down to Tijuana. I would spend as much time as I possibly could there to continue documenting. And, and frankly, that none of that ever got published, but it was important to me that it was documented and that that exists somewhere. Those stories exist somewhere. And I think care is in the moment in that way where, you know, we allow people to speak for themselves, to tell their own stories, right? Like I didn't know what they were going through. I could see it, but I didn't know. And so it was important for me that they told me their stories, that they kind of uh, drove the bus yeah. essentially. Um, and then beyond that, you know, I didn't just go there to get something from them, to get a photo or to get a story. I've still talked to them to the, to this day. I wanted to know what, like, where are they now? How are they doing? What are the challenges that they're facing now? So it's like, how do we continue to care for the people that entrust us with, with their heart, with their vulnerability, with, 
their life, essentially, in many cases? Um, how do we care for them beyond what we need in order to do our job? Yeah, I think that's always been one of the things I've been very curious about with respect to journalism, because I was I picked up a newspaper probably as soon as I could read. I was always very, very curious. But one of the things is is the whole issue about what story is being told and why. That going into you know a community like that, as altruistic as the writer or the photographer may be, how much of their own idea of what the story is blinds them to what the story actually is. And it's, and it's hard because you're having to, like you said, they're there primarily to tell the story, the obvious story, the story that all the other agencies are telling. That's why you can pick up any newspaper or watch any, you know, news broadcast and the narrative is pretty much the same. You really don't see anything sort of outside of that unless they're doing sort of a, like a profile on someone who kind of sort of anachronistic to, to the entire narrative. But it's like, well, where does the truth lie? You know, between those two. And it's hard because you don't have the luxury of time to be able to, to, tell a, a full flesh, you know, a nuanced story. So when you go in, especially in a situation like that, talk to me about your awareness of that, that's that contradiction and having it to no, negotiate it personally, not just, you know, to an editor at some, some publication. Yeah. I mean, it's something even, I mean, I think about it all the time, every day, honestly, even now that like even for assignments, especially, but you know, when you said, how do I do that caring as a freelancer? I think a lot of that had to do because I wasn't being paid 90% of the time to be there, mm -hmm. you know, like all of that was coming out of my own pocket. And like, I was just, I was just there because I felt that need to be there desperately, um, to make sure that that other side was also being told and documented. So like, even if it meant doing the legwork after the fact, and trying to get that story pushed out after the fact. Um, because the truth is, is, you know, there's only so much research you can do initially before you have to be somewhere and just listen to what's mm. happening. Um, like I can do like the Acuna story, for example, when there was 12,000 Haitian migrants that were trapped essentially under the international bridge without really being let in or out. And they were just there. And, you know, Every news outlet flocked there, um, rightfully so, because, I mean, thank goodness it was being talked about, because otherwise, like, who knows, like, how long they would have been there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we have that famous image of, uh, you know, Paul Raje, a good friend of mine, that he took of the Border Patrol agent on the horse um, encountering the Haitian migrant. And so I got there right as that happened, and I remember seeing everyone focusing on border patrol after that right like and to a degree i can mm. understand where it can be coming from a place of holding you know um them accountable but at the same time if you see 20 people all doing and covering in this direction we also have to be able to be there and listen around us and look around us and turn around and see okay what else is happening like you know what I mean? And there is a lot of pressure from, you know, a news outlet, I think, 
to get the story. You know, like I, I felt it when I went to cover Title 42 with a news outlet. It was the first time I was actually there, like with like for someone. I, I had always been at the border on my own, like just for me. And I felt that initial pressure. But I remembered that the best stories that I got were because I was willing to turn around and to look the other, the opposite direction right. and see, okay, like what else can I add to the story that isn't being told? Because otherwise I'm just, it's just like a, an echo chamber. Um, and in Acuna specifically, what I remember covering, um, was I turned around and I saw how the city of, Me of Acuna in Mexico, the entire town essentially like shut down and went to go support the Haitian migrants, like whether it was cooking, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, taking turns, bringing food, first aid, like you name it. Like people would show up with their minivans to let people charge their phones. Like that whole city activated to support them. And when I asked this town, like, why, why is everyone here? Like in such, you know, show of, of support. And they said, because we know what it feels like. We've had family members who have crossed, who have died trying to cross who have tried and cannot. And like, they're like, we really understand what the suffering that they're going through by not having these basic things. Mm -hmm. And that to me was the story because oftentimes we don't hear about Mexico uh, really being there in that, in that way, in that way, period. Like I don't see a lot of news stories like that. And so for me, it's more important to fill in the gaps than it is to get the shot that, you know, is expected of me. If you share my passion for creativity and believe in the power of artistic expression, I invite you to become a Patreon supporter of The Candid Frame today. By supporting the podcast, you not only ensure its continued existence, but also enable countless others to benefit from the enriching conversation it brings. Your contributions help create a space where creativity thrives and meaningful connections are forged. To become a Patreon supporter, simply visit patreon.com forward slash thecandidframe, and you can support the show for as little as $5 a month. Your generosity makes a significant impact in sustaining this valuable resource for artists and creatives around the world. Join the community of Patreon supporters and be part of the Candid Frame's mission to inspire, uplift, and empower photographers everywhere. Visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame and become a supporter today. Thanks. One of the images that I saw recently uh, was of uh, migrants crossing, and you were obviously in the water with them. Uh, tell me about how that, how that all happened. Um, I remember seeing people crossing and seeing, you know, them put their children in buckets to cross. Um, it's a very small river, but the current is extremely strong. Like it's deceptively strong. Like people have drowned. So many people have drowned. Um, and I remember being a little emotionally overwhelmed to be quite honest with you, just watching it, you know, 12,000 people. That's a lot of people. And to see them essentially risking their lives just for bottles of water and diapers. And 
I, I became emotionally overwhelmed. And I remember sitting by the bank and not photographing. And, you know, like I can't force myself to photograph. And so it was important for me to really understand why I was there, why I was photographing uh, before I clicked that shutter the next time. And as I was sitting there, I remember seeing, um, you know, I had never met John Moore before <laughs> until this moment. And he like comes next to me and he has this huge lens. And I was just like, wow, like I had a little 24 to 70, like that was <laughs> it. Like I, I had one camera, one 24 to 70 and like, just was like, well, I'm going to do what I can. And he's there, you know, with a 300, like he could see the chin hair on a border patrol agent from across the river with that lens. And I kind of looked up and I was like, Hey, can I look through your lens? And he was just like, sure. And I did. And I was just like, wow, like I wish I could get closer. And I said it out loud, not thinking that I said it out loud. And he's like, well, you could always get in the river. And like, as he said it, I was like, Oh, that's a great idea. And I know he was kidding. And we've laughed about this. I saw him recently. And we laughed about this. And I told him, you're the reason I got in the river. Because when he said that, I remembered, you know, you know, that famous quote, I, I don't remember who said it. But you know, it says like, if, if your pictures aren't good enough, you're not close enough. Close enough. Robert Kappa. Yeah, there it is. And so all of that kind of came to be and I was like, well, guess I'm going in the river. And I literally did. I had got in the river. Um, it looked like it was not as tall because I'm five feet tall, but everyone else was much taller than me. So by the time I got halfway through that river, it was literally up to my neck. And I was just praying to every God and goddess I know to not drop my one and only camera that I could not afford to replace. Oh my God. Um, but so in you that did moment, not plan somebody that well ahead of time. No, 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 not at all. I just, he said it. And I was like, you're right. I have to get in the water. I'm like, if, if they're getting in the water, why can't I, or why shouldn't I, you know, like mm. I'm not above anybody to not get wet. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so I did. And in that same moment, somebody was swimming underwater and literally just came up in front of me. And that was just the one shot. It's, you know, one of my favorite photographs that I've ever taken, mostly because of the experience, right. Of like really putting myself in that space <laughs> quite literally. Yeah. The, the, the images are, are, so different from anything I've seen before that have documented that thing over decades. So they're, they're amazing photographs, but Thank how you. did actually experiencing what these people experience, you know, even though you weren't under the same sort of pressure that they were, how did having a visceral sense of what it, it's like to cross that river, how did that change the way that you see see that journey. I mean, I can't even say that I came anywhere near close to having an experience that they had. Uh, but just in the few moments where, you know, you do put your life at risk in order to come as close as possible to it. It's just, I don't know. I, I think I became more gentle. I mm. wasn't just gung ho on, you know, going there and like, you know, I was very kind of like, I need to go there and I need to document and I need to make sure people know what's going on. And, you know, like, and when I got in that river, when I got out of it, something, I just, there was a gentleness about it because I can't imagine having to cross 10 countries, uh, in a constant state of fear and survival and just it never ending. Even when you get into the United States, it doesn't end. Yeah. You know, many people think that just because you cross the, the wall or the river, that, oh, now you got, you know, you got your golden ticket. You're here now. 
Um, but it just, it never ends. You know, there's a whole new set of challenges, a whole new world essentially. And I think that having those experiences makes me approach these situations more gently and, and, you know, like less extractively. Um, and I just take my time, you know, like even this last time, uh, when I was covering title 42 ending, I know I had a million editors and people just like, I could feel it literally. I was tethered to like a million responsibilities, but I just was so gung ho on taking my time and remaining gentle, no matter what pressure, no matter what I had to get. Like I did like, and it's not that I didn't care that I had to get those things because I care very much about, you know, uh, being the best work ethic, having the best work ethic I can, but I just like, I will never make people feel like I'm there to get something from them after that. Yeah. I think um, the history of journalism has been, uh, especially the photojournalism has been uh, the role of documenting trauma that whether, you know, whether it's, you know, the site of where a mass killing has happened or, or fire has happened or, in this case, you know, migrants crossing a border. Um, the photographs that result from that are really dramatic. But I think over the last couple of decades, there's been um, some consideration for um, the responsibility when you are documenting someone else's tra about trauma. Uh, especially when it comes uh, to trauma of people who are already marginalized. So talk to me about your concerns about that and how that impacts how and what you do. I think it goes back to kind of a little bit of what I said earlier about allowing and really creating a safe space for people to tell their own stories. I think a lot of the times I've witnessed people coming in with a story in mind already that they think is happening and doing everything in their power to make sure that that, that they take that story back with them. And I think there has to be a flexibility to, to, again, to listen and allow people to really just drive the bus. Like, you know, like I've said, I think that we can only, that's all we can do is just be there to listen and to share and to document. It's not really up to us to tell the story or to like, narrate the story. I think we're really just there to make sure that we're honoring people. And it's like about is how we go about it, right? It's like, am I just there to get a quote and then I leave and then, okay, bye, see ya, thanks. Or do I take the time to really sit there to get to know them as a human being outside of the experience that they're in right now? And, you know, part of that is, you know, finding something as simple as you know, just being like, hey, can I just hang out with you today? Like whatever that thing is. And then finding out that they're actually volunteering in a kitchen um, at a church that is, you know, where they're um, essentially getting supplies and then just watching them feel joy from cooking for an hour and making sure that I remember and that I document who they are in that moment of joy as much as I'm willing to document them in their suffering. Because I think we then have, we have to see people more than just migrants or more than their circumstance, that they're full people with full range of emotion, with full range of expression. And I think that that's just empathy building is really important for me because otherwise we're just going to keep saying the same thing over and over and over, yeah. especially when it comes to immigration. 
it's just the same thing again and again and again. And it's not getting better. So I think that really it's up to us to make sure that we're filling in those gaps. You know, who, who are they past the wall? Right. And, you know, I'm working on a story right now that's called Al Otro Lado, which is the other side. I've maintained contact with a lot of the families that I documented at the wall. And it's like, okay, let's go beyond the wall. Like, what is it really to be on this side? Mm -hmm. You know, asking the question, do you regret it? Are you happy? What are the challenges? Like, you know, like, like moving past the, the flashiness of the border wall and into the real humanity of the situation. Let's, let's talk about captions. Because that's that's a critical component of, of, of photojournalism, and I think it's uh, not discussed often enough. Because as much as as impact and uh, effective as a singular photograph can be, or even a photo essay, um, those those captions are really critical. And it used to be in the in the in olden times, um, the photographer themselves didn't write the caption; it was somebody back at the office. Um, now it's the photographers, you know, responsible for identifying people and writing the captions. But you, you, it's, it's kind of like Twitter. You only have a limited character count, only a certain number of words in order to be able to describe the, the photograph for the purpose of publication. Tell me about the challenge of learning how to do that and, and being, and being not only accurate, but also being sensitive to the people that you're documenting in the photographs themselves. I am still like captions are one of those things where I'm still in the process of befriending (laughs) 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 this, this whole AP style thing was just, (laughs) it was rough for the first few months, to be honest with you. I had many essays like, quotes that were like that could have been I don't know articles themselves honestly and so for me I guess it was just it was important to have people's voice within the captions especially in those situations like Hmm. yes I can describe the who what when where why but the why really leans heavily on letting people really tell their own story Um, and I'm just super big on that because people want to be heard and I think that Anything that it's like playing the telephone game, you know, like if someone tells me something and then I tell someone else something, it gets diluted in the process. And so utilizing quotes in captions is a huge thing for me because I want their voice to be a part of it, because I think it's also more powerful when you read something that someone said and then you can gaze into their image There's just a there's a deeper level of connection, I think, than just getting you know, the facts of the situation. You do need that context, mm-hmm. but I think it's also important to hear people uh, beyond just the who, what, when, where, why. Tell me about the importance of the community, the, the photo community. I know you, you're you involved with women photographers. You hosted a couple of panels for them. Tell me about the role that having those kinds of relationships have made in terms of your career and the work that you do. Yeah, I could, I could say the word community a thousand times, to be honest with you. It's kind of a running joke amongst my friends at this point. Um, but it is very important because, like I said, I not being uh, trained or going to school for all of, for any of this, community was really like 
what held me, like the photographic community. Um, whether I was in spaces where it was obvious, I didn't know what I was doing and people would come up to me and be like, Hey, like, let me, let me show you the ropes a little bit, or like, let me show you this or that. Or I have always felt incredibly supported by the photography community, no matter where I go in the world. Like I could go anywhere and someone will show up and, and essentially host you through the, the, their own photographic community. And I thought that was really beautiful and really special. But again, in doing so, in being in a lot of conversations and building a lot of relationships with people, like any industry, I naturally started hearing the common threads, right? Where our industry wants to grow, how it wants to evolve, the things that are concerns, not just in the world, but for us as photographers within our own community. Um, and when I start hearing things from multiple people, I can't help myself. I have to like create something that even just sparks the conversation at the very least. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I'm a solution oriented person. Like I can't stop. (laughs) I can't stop. Won't stop. And so when I hear that, you know, for example, in the women in photo panel discussions and now show that I've put together, it came out of just women talking and saying, you know, I wish more people knew this or why, why are we not at parity yet? You know, like what is going on? And so I think if we keep all that to ourselves or just to like, you know, one-on-one, it's good to have those conversations, but it doesn't activate. It doesn't like create any change really, but by creating panel discussions or by creating spaces where you can celebrate those people, like in Houston, we just, I had a similar thing. I kept hearing that people didn't know a female photographer in Houston or they knew one. And I was like, that's absurd. I'm sure there's so many. Mm -hmm. And all I had to do was put a call out on my Instagram stories and almost 40 women reached out to me in a matter of a week and a half. And so I was like, okay, I can't just let that be it, you know? So I basically told everyone to send me some images. I got those images printed. We had a wonderful space called Wonder Like Wonder, who's also owned by a woman. And we showcased their work. And it and in, and hundreds of people came out, and now people know there are more than just one or two female photographers in Houston. Um, and that is just like just on a bigger scale, it's just creating the spaces that you hear are needed. You know, like I I don't know, I feel like it's like buzzing all the time. Like if I hear people say, "Oh, I wish we had this," or "I wish we had that," okay, great. Well, let's come together and and fi- and at least test try something and just see what we can do. Um, And I think that that's where community is so powerful and so necessary because it really allows us to create things together that are for each other. And then, you know, for everyone around us, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, Um, And and the quality of the community is really critical, you know, that it's, you have to be discerning enough to, to figure out communities that are, uh, lifting everyone up and others that are sort of holding people down, you know, because there, there are people who like clustering around each other and bitching and complaining about the way things are, you know, and yeah. there's a sort of um, comfort in having those opinions and those ideas sort of affirmed by someone else, but it doesn't spur any action. So I think that it's it's important to find a community, but also realize that it has to serve a need other than sort of keeping things where they are. 
and waiting for someone else to, to, to make things happen. But it's obviously, you don't hang out with that kind of crew. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? And I invite them. I invite them because honestly, I really do believe that at the end of the day, people really just, they are either lacking the confidence in trusting that things can change and just Mm -hmm. need to see it from other people, or they just essentially need to be given a safe space to, you know, get that brilliant idea out of their mind and into the streets, essentially, (laughs) you know? Um, and that's where I think community can be very powerful is that it really can lean on supporting people. Like we all have in our own minds and hearts right now, the solutions to the very issues that we are facing and needing and wanting change for. We just have to come together and talk about it, create it, support each other around that thing and be okay if it, if it doesn't work and it's okay to fail. It's okay if that thing didn't work. Okay. Let's go back to the drawing board. What else can we do? Um, that's the biggest thing is that I think that fear of rejection is so, it's so heavy in our community uh, because, you know, people being ostracized and being, you know, sent away and being banished <laughs> for, you know, messing up. It, it's, it's very prevalent in photojournalism. Like it's like, there's this thing where it's like, you're not allowed to make a mistake. And I think sometimes people just do and it's okay. And we have to be able to create a space where they can be shown um, a a way out of that mistake and how to grow and still be accepted by a community. You know, Yeah, is that idea of, of, of sharing with people that it's okay to fail something that was part of what you taught and sort of encouraged with, the girls that you work with, you know, with like at Las Fotos, the Las Fotos project, that idea that it's, it's okay to make mistakes and fail. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially that age, you know, uh, when you're in middle school and high school, you're so highly critical of yourself that any small failure felt overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Like it was like the end of the world sometimes. Uh, And I think the best way that I was really able to show that, to my students was when I failed, you know, I had a whole curriculum planned, but sometimes that like the girls just didn't want to do what I wanted to do <laughs> like at all. And like, <laughs> you cannot convince a room full of 13 year olds to do anything they don't want to no. do. Um, and so, you know, it really was, I had to humble myself when I would present this whole thing and they just looked at me like, no, <laughs> not at all. Um, and be like, okay, I messed up on this. That's cool. Let's, you know, and then in that moment is when I would say, what do you want to do? Let's do some, let's create our day together. Mm-hmm. Right. Because then when we're learning from a place of curiosity, it's so, it changes the whole game. Um, and so it was, you know, I had to humble myself and not be that strict teacher. That's like, you know, we're going to do what I say, because at the end of the day, it's about them. It's about that. Like, you can't force creativity. You can't force inspiration. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a lot of it comes from me failing <laughs> at things and being like, okay, well, you know, the grace that was given to me by them is what I try. How I try my best, you know, I'm not perfect, but I try to, to give that grace to people in my life who, um, who I maybe collaborate with, who are afraid to fail or who do mess up or I mess up. Like it, it's okay. <laughs> you know, we just have to keep going. We can't be afraid to then try something new 
to dream up something new. Who have been the people in your lives who have encouraged that? Oh, for sure, my parents. I mean, they they basically consistently tell me nothing is impossible. There are practical steps to anything that you can you set your mind to. Um, and because they saw I had very big dreams at a very early age, and I was just like, I want to change the world. <laughs> like, and I still feel that to this day. Um, and so it was really important. And I'm so thankful that I had parents that were basically telling me, cool, you're going to do that. But first, <laughs> take these steps. You know what I mean? Yeah, that was that was pivotal for me. You've had the opportunity to meet some really exceptional photographers. Well, we met some of them in Montana a couple of years ago. Um, like Carol that Guzzi was amazing. Is, is one of the standouts for there. So how has that? How has been seeing yourself as a peer to people you admire? What's that meant for you? Uh, I'm still pinching myself <laughs> consistently every day. Um, I mean, I think it means that, I don't know, that my heart's in the right place, honestly. Like, I know I have a lot to learn. I Being in the same room, sitting there with Carol Guzzi, having her look through my website, literally sweating bullets. Like, <laughs> oh my God. And Montana was cold, but I was sweating. <laughs> but <laughs> like, oh my goodness. But I mean, also, you know, I seeing them up close and seeing how beautiful, you know, especially Carol Guzzi, like I can talk about her all day long, but, mm. you know, really being able to hear their stories and kind of hear similarities, you know, like hearing about when they failed, for example, or, you know, John Stanmeyer has been a huge mentor to me. And I went to his workshop at, you know, at his home in the Berkshires. And he does this thing that's really unique where he will open his Lightroom and go through an entire project's take all the misfires, all the overexposed, oh, wow. all the, you know, yes, even John Stanmeyer overexposes things like, sorry to, I hope he's not listening to this, but, you know, but really being able to see that we are all students and teachers at the same time forever. And that's something he really like, uh, wanted me to walk away with that. I think really knowing that, that we're all just learning and growing and doing our best. And, you know, some people have really put in so much work and have so much to give as far as uh, advice and mentorship and being in that room with all of those people in Montana was inspiring because I'm like, okay, like this is achievable. This is attainable. Like I can really do the things that felt like dreams a moment ago. I've met the people like I, they're still there. I can touch mm -hmm. them. You know what I mean? And everyone was so kind and, again, very willing to share and give. And that's something that I see consistently in the photographic community is that there are people that are genuinely willing to know your soul in order to help guide you so that you can create the work that you know you were brought to this planet to create. And that is, I think, so beautiful to me. Because of, you know, the, the Internet and Facebook, and Instagram and Twitter and and the impact that advertising on those platforms and how they've impacted newspapers and magazines. Uh, most of the magazines I used to write for are gone. I think I, there's probably only one that still that still exists. Um, 
And and so people who had like this fire to become photojournalists, you know, it's I, I suspect that a lot of them are telling them it's a dying industry, you know, go into public relations or go into something else other than that, because you'll staff jobs are not out there and, you, you know, you're not going to be able to survive and make a living. What's your counter to that? People told me that for six years. And I pushed and I pushed and I pushed and I pushed. And my counter to that is, you know, I think that it is important that a certain way of life dies so that a new one can reemerge. I think it's really up to us and especially my generation to make, make that thing happen. Like if we want to keep magazines and newspapers alive, we can do that, but it's up to us to do that, you know? And I think that there's potentially a reimagining of what that looks like. And with that, you know, a renaissance era, if you will, I think it's just going to look different as things evolve. They look different and it feels scary sometimes as that happens, as things mm -hmm. are dying out and as things are shifting. But it also means that there's room for, for a new thing, a new way of doing that. Um, and I do think it's really important to keep print alive, like, extremely important because if all the computers just go out so what all the stories go out too yeah. <laughs> like we need to have some form of documentation that exists in a very real tangible way um and i think this generation is going to come up with something really cool and really unique and it's going to speak to this generation and it's going to keep it alive there's a lot of people that are passionate about it um and again, I just think it's about sharing. It's sharing these ideas, letting people know that we are keeping it alive, like yeah. um, to not buy into the idea that it's all going to just die out and there's not going to be any job ever again. You know, like we make them. Yeah, because just because the the industry itself is struggling to sort of figure it out, there is no shortage of people who whose stories want to get told. And people who want to tell those stories, that doesn't change. Exactly. So it's 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 going to find an outlet one way or another, which is one of the reasons I'm having to kind of reduce my consumption of 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 posts and you know the noise that is just so negative. Mm -hmm. I, and I, I think I, that we can create physical spaces again. Like it doesn't all have to resort to Twitter and Instagram. Although I love Instagram, not going to lie, like a wholly visual platform, like my God, like, yes. Um, you know, I mean, it's a tool like any other, you know, it's like a knife. You can use it to cut food or you can use it to murder someone. It's, it's about how we use it at the end of the day. Um, and really understanding that it's about how we use that tool. Um, but I, I love and I love that I'm experiencing so much of this in Houston of people really keeping physical spaces alive, physical spaces for people to come together to witness each other's stories. Um, and that's something that I saw in Missouri Photo Workshop. One of the most beautiful things about the Missouri Photo Workshop was at the very end when the entire community came together yeah. to witness each other and to have the physical prints in a stadium and to have people who might have never talked to each other, never even glanced, you know, a second glance towards one another, just have a moment to witness each other's very personal life, 
even if just for a moment, like I was literally bawling in a corner. You can ask Brandon Bell or anyone else who went that last year, I was bawling in a corner because it was like that very physical space where somebody had a reaction or a a moment of empathy towards their neighbor, quite literally in their community, but they were there physically to encounter one another and to have that moment of connection. Um, And I think that that is so beautiful. I mean, that's really to me like next level for photojournalism, like creating spaces where people can come witness each other's stories with empathy and no judgment, but presently with one another um, community building right then and there. I think in, in in this country specifically, I, I I really can't speak for places outside of the U.S., but we're so used to being talking about the value of anything based on how it can be commoditized, and that if it can't be, then its value is sort of somehow diminished. And I think we are it's a disservice to anything, but especially photography and photojournalism, if you, if you strictly look at it, if you strictly look at it through that filter, because you really miss out on why you and so many other people, um, remain so passionate about it and, you know, come hell or high water are still going to do it. You know, there's something driving it far beyond, you know, it's, it's monetary value. Still, we need to make a living, but yeah. you know, it's being driven by something far more, far more powerful. Absolutely, and I mean, you know, I am definitely aware that I am in a very lucky position to have a staff job. I mean, I don't even really know how it happened, to be perfectly honest with you. Shout out to Mari the Jesus and PPA president because she was like get over here right now. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you got it. But again, like, like that community, like they just keeping us all going essentially. But yeah, the physical spaces that that's my goal, even within newsrooms. So my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone. Someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. For who would that one photographer be and why? This is so hard. This is a very hard question. <laughs> There's so many people. I would have to say someone who I think will just make for a great conversation and whose heart is above and beyond in the right place um, is Sebastián Hidalgo from Chicago, Illinois. Tell me about him. Sebastián Hidalgo is, for me, what really struck me about him is like, he's so studious. Like he is dedicating his life to really going about caring for the people that he photographs and that he writes about. His main thing is, you know, like, how are we not re-traumatizing people simply by doing this work? And I think that's so important for us as journalists to learn, um, like how do we really engage with people from a place that isn't re-traumatizing and that is really one of care, like really caring for people. Um, and it shows in his work and it just, it shows in how he works. And I think that he's really on to something as far as a new way of being on the ground. Oh, thank you for that, Raquel. And thank you for making time for me today. Thank you for making time for me. (laughs) It's an honor. 
Thanks to Raquel for joining us today. Find out more about her and her work by visiting RaquelNetalicio.com. And if you're a fan of our show, we encourage you to write reviews on the podcast platform of your choice and share your favorite episodes on social networks via Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And if you'd like to support us financially, you can make contributions via PayPal or Patreon. Thanks to Tracy Adams, Raphael Hugue, Mark H. Berger, and Maurice Bellinger for their generous contributions. We've recently relaunched our newsletter. By signing up on our website, you'll receive updates on everything related to DCF, as well as book recommendations, announcements for special events and workshops from us and some of our guests. And if you're having trouble finding all our episodes on your preferred podcast service, you can download the Candid Frame app for Apple iOS and Android. Thanks to your generosity, the app is free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor. You can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And I'm Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.